Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to uh, invite you to grab your beverages and come on in and take your seats. And we'll continue with our time together this morning. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And if you're new or visiting with us, it's our privilege to have you. And uh, we hope that you get to know a few people here and uh, that this time that we look into God's Word uh, will be something that is instructive for you as well. Uh, as we get going, I want to ask you, um, and you may, be, you may not want to put your hand up. I'll preface it by saying that. You may not want to put your hand up if this was you. How many of you had a MySpace account? How many of you remember what MySpace is or was? All right, <laughs> a few of you do. See, you're quite embarrassed to do so because MySpace was just that bad, wasn't it? So MySpace, um, I don't know if it was ever popular, really, in the sense of uh, catching on, but MySpace was like uh, Facebook before Facebook was really cool. So MySpace was kind of... Um, I, the thing I do remember about MySpace, I never had an account, but I do remember that MySpace was really notorious for horrible photos that people would post of themselves all the time. They would do these kind of pictures of uh, like trying to take a picture of themselves in the mirror, but they were always overexposed with flashes and things like this. So I thought in the mid-2005, we would be rid of MySpace forever with the ascendancy of Facebook. And I think one of the things that um, in the early days of Facebook, when um, Zuckerberg and others were, were interviewed, they would talk about how bad MySpace was in order to get people to migrate over to Facebook. And they would talk about these pictures all of the time, just how bad these and how campy the pictures were on MySpace, and yet how good the pictures were on uh, Facebook. And then Apple started putting cameras into their phones, and now we all have, you know, eight megapixel plus phones in our cameras. And so we thought that maybe the bad photos from MySpace would go away mid-2005. Turns out here we are in early 2014, and the word of the year last year was selfies. That's right. And it's made it into the dictionary now, which means it's a real word, which means it, there are hope for the words that I invent, although Pastor Keith will tell me differently very often. But a, a selfie, this picture we take of ourselves, right? It actually says a lot about what you want to convey about yourself, doesn't it, in a lot of ways? And I began to wonder, as we're going through the book of Hosea, in a lot of ways, Hosea is kind of like God took a selfie. That sounds a little bit irreligious and maybe a little bit blasphemous. But Hosea is giving us this window into a side of God's character that we don't often think very carefully about. But Hosea kind of lets us in on that aspect of God's character that's very candid, it's very raw. And we have to ask the question, what does this part of the scriptures want us to see and to know? What is God trying to reveal about himself to us in the book of Hosea. So here at Jericho Ridge, we've been going through the book of Hosea in January and in February in the Old Testament. And as I've said before, there's two primary images that come to us in the book of Hosea to convey these ideas of who God is and what he's like. So the first one that we bump into right away at the start of the book is that very raw image of a spousal image, a husband and an unfaithful wife. And Hosea himself lives this out with Gomer. 
And it becomes a painfully sharp way of God saying to his people, this is how I feel about our relationship. I have loved you with an everlasting love, compassion, and kindness, but you've chosen to engage in other relationships. You've been unfaithful to me. And that second image that we've explored that's come to us in the book of Hosea, particularly in these past few weeks, is that notion of a parent and a rebellious child. And chapter after chapter, we've heard Hosea speaking about the way in which God is thinking, about the way in which his family is behaving, the choices that we are making and the people have made, and how God's going to let them experience the consequences of those choices. But today, the lens shifts a little bit, and the camera angle changes from the focus on the children to the focus actually on the parent. And so we're still working with this image, but in Hosea 11, it's as if God turns the camera on himself and actually lets us into a unique window on his emotions, thoughts, and feelings about it. It's unvarnished, it's raw, and if you'll permit a bit of irreverence, it's a bit of a divine selfie. So in several places in the Bible, not just in Hosea, God is revealed to us as a father, a loving father who longs for us as his wayward sons and daughters to be in a relationship with him. And most often when God is depicted in classical art, it's actually more like a grandfather than a father, maybe. But he's given this kind of image, isn't he? But this notion of God as a father has some challenges built into it, doesn't it? So I want us to explore a little bit of those challenges and think a little bit about those. If you've got your uh, phone with you, I want you to tweet your thoughts uh, about what are some of the challenges that you think are built into this image of thinking about God as a father. You can just tweet them to Jericho Ridge. You can use the series hashtag messy love if you want, and we'll uh, think about some of those as we dive into our text together this morning. So I'm going to give voice to a couple of them and then feel free to add your voice to the conversation online. I think the first challenge that comes up when we think about this image of God as a father is that this image has a very strong possibility of being tainted by our own experiences, both negatively and positively. If we had a good experience growing up, and have a healthy picture of our relationship and what that looks like with our own father, then this image, we can find some warmth there. We can find it helpful. But for many people who have not had that experience, who have suffered neglect or even abuse at the hands of their earthly father, this image of God as a father becomes very tainted and becomes confusing to them. And yet, for some reason, God still chooses to use that language when he reveals himself to us in the scriptures. He reveals himself as a father. Jesus refers to God our father and God as his father in the New Testament and invites us to exercise the same prerogative. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our father, Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our father who is in heaven. 
In the New Testament, God's often referred to as Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is one expression that keeps coming up over and over again. And so the question that we want to think about is, why would God take that risk? Why would God reveal himself as a father if he knows that that has a possibility of being tainted in some way by our experiences? Why take the risk of knowing the broken and fallen nature of humankind and the potential for us to blur the lines between our experiences with our earthly father and our heavenly father? Why would he still choose to reveal himself as a father? Well, the other problem that we have, another challenge that we have with this language is that the image of God as a father is not very gender-inclusive. Starting around the midpoint of the last century, Uh, Feminist biblical scholars flag the notion for us, I think helpfully, that the image of God as a father is highly male-oriented, male-dominant, and perhaps there might have been other ways that God could have chosen to reveal himself, and maybe we should choose other ways of expressing ourselves when we're talking about who God is and what we mean when we talk about him or her or it or they, them, whatever language that people have uh, gotten accustomed to. I can remember a number of years back when Meg and I uh, were visiting out on the East Coast, and we visited a, a church community that had made gender-inclusive language a significant part of their liturgy and their ministry. And so it was very clear uh, that both in all of the pew Bibles, if you picked those up and you looked at them, all of the language was very specifically gender-inclusive, and they took great pains to explain their view that the scriptures had been tainted by a patriarchal narrative and history, and so it needed to be overcome and done away with. And so every time they referred to God in song or public recitation of scripture or the sermon, it was always he, she, or our father, mother, who art in heaven, which made, frankly, some of the songs very hard to sing. The cadence was just a little bit tricky on that one. Um, But before you roll your eyes and think to yourself, oh, those, you know, you make some snide comment about liberalism and mainline denominations in Canada, I would draw your attention to our own Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith, which works hard to wrestle with this issue. And the way that we've chosen to articulate this is to say that uh, the, the way in which God has revealed himself to us reveals to us about his actions, and his actions actually speak to us in particular ways. So the way we've chosen to go about it is say God comforts like a loving mother, God trains and disciplines like a caring father and persists in covenant love like a faithful husband. We confess God as eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think this is a helpful direction to take because it reminds us of another potential challenge that happens of thinking of God in uh, terms of a father, and that is that really we have to recognize that we're just limited by language when it comes to thinking about and expressing our thoughts about God. Any use of any anthropomorphic terminology, by which I mean using human categories or characteristics to try and describe God, is going to fall short of the mark. We're just limited by language. How could we ever hope to carry and capture the totality of God's revelation to us in the term father or any other term. And so our challenge is that we can get locked into thinking that if God invites him to address us as father, that that automatically means that God 
is male, which is not true. God is neither male nor female. Those are categories of gender that express how he has created us. But remember, in Genesis, it says God created them, male and female, and he created us in his image. And so both male and female are expressions of the image-bearing nature of God. God is neither male nor female. I guess it's a little confusing, but God's image is expressed in both maleness and in femaleness. But despite all of those limitations, despite all of those challenges, for some reason, God still chose the path of revelation and revealing himself as a father to us. And we're going to see in Hosea chapter 11 this morning, perhaps one of the reasons that God might have chosen to do this is to give us a window into the relational nature of who he is the relational nature that exists within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also what it means to be in a relationship with God. I think we use that language a lot, but a lot of times we're not really sure or we're not as precise as to what we mean by it. So I'm going to begin reading for us at Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I'm going to go through to verse 11 of chapter 11. God, uh, speaking through the prophet Hosea, says this, When Israel was a child, the parental imagery, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more that I called to him, the further he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal, burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk leading him along by the hand, but he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with ropes of kindness and love. I lifted that yoke of oppression from his neck, speaking about rescuing his people from Israel. I myself stooped to feed them, talking about when God provided for the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings for 40 years. But since my people refused to return to me, They will return to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates and they will destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. Though they call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. In verse 8, look at the tone that God takes with his people. Oh, How can I give up on you, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Arma or demolish you like Zeboim? Those are two cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I'm not going to unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel. For I am God. I am not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you. And I will not come to destroy. For someday, my people or the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. When I roar, my people will return, trembling from the west, from Egypt, from Assyria. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt, trembling like doves. They will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. It's powerful, powerful parental imagery embedded in that chapter, isn't it? 
I think there's maternal images as well as paternal emotions in there. So let's look together. What do we actually learn about God? What is God trying to reveal to us about himself and his character through this passage in this portrait? We've talked about some of the challenges, but what are the, what are the potential benefits or the upsides of God revealing himself to us in this way as a father? And I think the first one comes to us right away in verse 1 of chapter 11. And when Israel was a child, I loved him. I called my son out of Egypt, rooted in redemptive history. And the story back from the earlier parts of the Old Testament where God chooses the children of Israel and rescues them from, from Egypt and from slavery in Egypt. And God reminds them very clearly when he does this that he has rescued them and chosen them and loves them not because they are worthy or they have done anything to deserve it, but simply because they are his children. God as our Father chooses to love us not because we are worthy, but simply because we are his children. As a parent, I can understand this window into God's heart in a small and in a partial way. When our first son was born, Jared, uh, I wasn't sure how that experience would unfold, and maybe some of you can relate to that, but when he was born, one of the things that happened is instantly when he was born, I love that kid. I would have, in that moment, I would have done absolutely anything for him. I would have taken a bullet for him. I would have gone to the ends of the earth to do anything that was necessary because I loved him so deeply. My heart in that moment was so filled with love for him. But he had done nothing to deserve it. He hadn't accomplished anything. There was nothing of substance in that reciprocal nature of the relationship. It wasn't merited on, or based on his behavior or achievements. It was simply based on the fact that he was my child and I loved him. I think this past week we got a window into that with Chris and Sereni and with your experiences with baby Samuel. I want to just publicly say on behalf of the church, thank you for sharing that window with us. And when you guys showed that video, and when you were speaking over Samuel's life, those same themes were resonating, just the depth of your heart for him. And so we continue to stand with you in that process. I want you guys to know we'll continue to love you guys and care for you and honor that memory of that incredible love and compassion that you guys have for Samuel, he'll not be forgotten. Because when you're a parent, that just comes with the territory. You love simply because they're your children. God says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, this part of his heart I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. And with an unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. 
In the New Testament, in Ephesians, we're reminded again that this is all God's choosing. It's his work. It's not by Ephesians 2 says, works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that God has saved us. A little bit before that, in Ephesians 1, verse 4 to 6, it says, even before he made the world, God loved us. He chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. And God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, the scriptures say. It gave him great pleasure. Before we were born, before you were known, you were known by your heavenly Father. And so Ephesians 6, 2 verse 6, sorry, 1, 6 says, we praise God for the glorious grace that he's poured out on all of us who belong to his dear son. God chooses to love you, not because you are worthy of his love, but because you are his child. And there is then a response that you are called to. Simply receive it. That's all you can do. All you can do is choose to receive and respond to God's love. You can't earn it. You simply have to open your life to receive it. You can receive his love by choosing to open your heart to him, into a relationship with him. Maybe for you today, that's a new idea or a new thought. Maybe it's one you've thought about before, but you've never acted on in some way. And maybe today is the day for you to actually stop resisting that process and fighting against the Father's love, and instead lay down your self-sufficiency and your pride and say, you know what, I'm actually willing to receive and respond to that. I want to receive and choose to be a part of God's forever family adopted as a son or as a daughter. Maybe your day is to choose to respond to God in gratitude and praise and commitment in your hearts to him. Or maybe not. That's also an option. You can choose to say, yeah, God might love me, but I'm, I'm going to stand outside of the reach of his love in my life. I'm going to close and wall off my heart and my life from him, and I'm going to choose, doesn't matter if he loves other people, I'm going to choose not to receive that in my own life. We see that in Hosea. The people rejected God. The more God called to them, he says, the more they ran away from him and rejected him, and the further they hid from him. But this is not God's desire Because the second thing we learn about God is that as a father, God does not leave us to fend for ourselves. Look at the language of Hosea chapter 11, verses 3 and verse 4. God says in Hosea 11, 3, he teaches us. He leads us. He guides us. He delivers us. God does not leave us to fend for ourselves. Just like a parent, this love is sometimes expressed in correction and discipline, in teaching and guiding, but it's also expressed tenderly in proximity and in nearness. God is present, acknowledged or not. And so you and I can take comfort in knowing that no matter what comes into our lives, our Father will never leave us nor forsake us. Our Father comes 
to us to teach us, to heal us, to guide us, to correct us, to deliver us, bends down the languages and feeds and tenderly cares for us. And so when we see God revealed to us as a father in this way, we can take comfort and face the trials of life knowing that we are not alone, that God is near to us. I love the way that this is expressed in another Old Testament prophet in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. God says, do not be afraid, I am with you. Do not be discouraged, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will strengthen you and help you, I will hold you up with my righteous and victorious right hand. God says in the middle of what you're going through, I will not leave you as an orphan. Your presence, you may not feel my presence or the presence of God all the time, but he has not left you. You can choose to turn from him. You might be smack in the middle of experiencing negative consequences for your choices and actions. You may have even determined in your heart to desert God and not to truly honor him. You might rail against him and question why and get angry at God and at others around you, but God still is our Father and his heart is still filled with compassion and love for you. Which brings us to the next thing that's revealed to us in this text. As a father, God does not give up on us when we fail. And this is one area where Uh, God's divine and fatherly love for us definitely departs from our capacity as human beings. Because even as a parent, there's a level of uh, tolerance that you might possess for straying or for disobedience or rebellion. And at some point, you'll cross a line where you have a hard time forgiving or a hard time for extending graciousness, again, if that's the 15th time today we've had to deal with that particular issue. But the picture that is revealed to us of God in the scriptures is that the father, God is like the father of the prodigals. We've talked about this over the last couple of weekends. Who after giving away his earthly riches, only to have it squandered on purely stupid and immoral means, he still stands ready to receive back into relationship those who have wandered. He still waits. He still watches. He still longs for the return of his sons and his daughters. And when his sons and his daughters who, are, who have strayed return, he doesn't lecture them or cajole them back or hold back part of his heart as a father and say, well, I'm not going to let myself be hurt in that way again. As a father, God is unrestrained and lavish in his love for his children. And unrestrained in his mercy and forgiveness. Does this give us license to do whatever we want? No. One commentator puts it this way. Repeated rejection of God will injure the relationship, but it will not and cannot destroy the deep love that God has for his people. He repeatedly promised the Israelites when they were suffering and in distress that he would not abandon them and that he would be faithful to keep his covenant promises to them. See, 
in our understanding and in our culture, since it was just Valentine's Day, we toss around the word love a lot. And usually when we use the word love, we mean warm feelings, as long as the other person feels those same kind of feelings towards us. But when God says and reveals himself and says, I have a love for you as a father, he's revealing this deeper, richer, more substantive kind of love in his heart than we can ever be offered in trite greeting cards. Because when God says, I love you, he means like 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Love that never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every set of circumstances. We'll often use that to talk about a love that we call each other to. But this is a a divinely oriented kind of love. And it's astounding because we get this clear picture from the past few chapters of Hosea that these people have strayed so far away from God that it's almost unimaginable. They've not just made a few bad choices. They are so far away from God's heart that it's almost unthinkable that they could ever conceptualize returning. Verse 7 of chapter 11, God says, they have purposed in their heart that they will desert me. And yet, God says, I will never give up on them. I am always hopeful in my love for them. I will always endure through every circumstance, every circumstance. And you see, the challenge with this is some of you here today actually believe that you have done things in your life that are beyond, that have put you permanently beyond the reach of the Father's love. You think that that hidden sin in your life that keeps rearing its ugly head means that God is frustrated with you to the point of being finished with you. Some of you think that you've done things and sins so huge that you are forever doomed to live outside of the reach of the Father's love. I'm going to be brazen, and I'm going to read the text of Hosea 11, verses 8 and on. And I want you to put your name in there with me. Just as I read it along, I'll put my name in there. God speaking to you says, how can I give up on you, Brad? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me, but my compassion overflows. So I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy you, Brad. For I am God, I am not a mere mortal, I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. For someday you will follow me, and I will bring you home again, says the Lord. See, that kind of radical love that God has for you and for me is in short supply in our world today, which is why we think when we do something or repeat something that we are living outside of the love that the Father has for us. Even in our family systems, we tend to give and receive love based on behavior and performance, and yet the love of God expressed here in Hosea is so much richer and deeper. God doesn't choose to love us because we're worthy. God chooses to love us simply because we are his children. He chooses never to leave us nor forsake us, knowing full well the messes that we can get ourselves into in our lives repeatedly. 
This is a radical love. This is a love that the world needs to know and to hear and to feel and to see and to experience the depth of it. But the challenge is that that actually takes a level of investment on our part. And I wonder if we actually have the courage to model this kind of love for each other and for a world that needs to see it. Because it takes an incredible level of risk. It takes an incredible level of vulnerability and brokenness to love in this way. But the challenge with love is that we can talk a lot about it, but love is actually not an, ex- it's not an intellectual concept, and it's, it's an experienced concept. And so we have to actually act on what we have heard. The love of, of the Father actually needs to be experienced in order to be understood and embraced. And as Christians, I think we've been pretty guilty of telling people about God's love. But one of the things that this passage in Hosea is jarring our sensibilities about and pushing us to think more about is have we actually lived in an experience of God's love for us and then lived out of that experience and loved other people as God has loved us and desires other people to be loved? Until that, it's not really that great that we tell them about how much God loves them until we actually live and show them a watching world, what it means to experience and know the love of the Father. Because love cannot be embraced if it's only intellectually understood. It has to be lived. And so I want us to ask ourselves to wrestle with two questions. The first question is maybe an internal processing one for you. Are there barriers around this that you need to wrestle with? And you need to attend to. Are there barriers that you need to overcome? Maybe they're barriers from your past and from your history. Maybe they're lies that you've told yourself or allowed yourself to come to believe about being removed from God's love. Maybe you have hurts, habits, or hang-ups that you need to bring to God and confess to him. Maybe the notion of God as a father has been tainted for you in a very damaging way. But maybe perhaps today is the day that you allow God to begin to break down some of those ideas and thoughts and those walls that you've built up, those hard places in your heart, and allow the love of God the Father to pour in again. And so if you'd like us to pray for you, we would be more than willing and have people ready and available at the sides to do so when the team comes in a few minutes. So there might be barriers that you need to overcome and you're welcome just as we spend time in worship and song, just to, you don't have to sing along just because there's words up on the screen. Just spend time talking to God and asking, God, are there any barriers in my life around this notion of experiencing you as my father that I have to overcome and attend to? Maybe another uh, process question for you is, maybe you don't feel that you have a lot of barriers in that way, but there might be actions that then you need to take this week. You might need to actually demonstrate God's love to someone with whom you're in relationship with. And so I want you to ask who around you might actually need to experience the love of the Father this week and what would it take for you to be the person that shows them his love? Might be somebody that's difficult to love. Might be a simple act for you. You might need to take a widow, 
uh, a meal over to a widow in your neighborhood. You might need to take a hurting colleague out to lunch. It might be that colleague at work that no one else takes out to lunch because you know they're just going to dump their stuff all over and nobody and people know it and they're tired of hearing this person complain about their life over and over and over and over again. Maybe you need to be the person that God prompts to be and demonstrate the love of God the Father to them. might mean that you actually want to come for prayer today and ask God for strength to relate to those around you with patience. Maybe it's your kids in a fresh way this week so that you could demonstrate the love of God the Father to them in a fresh way might mean you need to deepen your scripture intake so that you actually begin to allow God from his word to speak to you about how he has revealed himself to a father and let him pour his love into your heart on a daily basis. Ask God to give you during this time one thought or one action that you're going to put into practice this week to live out the love of the father in some practical and meaningful way. Well, the team's going to come and they're going to lead us in three songs of response. And all of these songs speak to us about the love that God has for us as a father. And so I'm going to pray for you as we respond together in worship. And then as we respond, we would just invite you to move for prayer uh, as you feel that you would like to. So God, we are grateful uh, that for whatever reason, and despite all the limitations of language and all of the other barriers that we can Uh, have and wrestle with in our hearts and in our minds that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us as a father. And so in this place, Jesus, we want to position ourselves to receive that love and to respond out of it today. For some of us, that'll be easy. For others of us, that will be incredibly challenging. And so, Jesus, would you pour more grace into those lives that have been wounded or that today are uh, feeling the extraordinary challenge of receiving and living in that love. And so, Father, we ask that your compassion and your grace and your mercy would be evident to all and that you would draw us near. Draw us near as a community, Father, collectively to your heart, to sit at your feet, to listen to you and what it is that you might be saying to us as our Father. And so, Jesus, we commit to responding in the ways that you prompt and call us to. We ask for a spirit of faith and obedience to be stirred up in our hearts, Jesus, at this time. And so we pray and invite you, God our Father, to do this work in letting your kingdom come and your will be done, letting your love be known on earth, here in this place, here in our lives, here in this city, here in this community as it is in heaven. And so, Jesus, as we worship, we pray that you would draw us into that place of knowing you in a deeper way and experiencing you in a deeper way in your love for us. We ask this according to the way that you have opened for us in the Son. Amen. Let's worship together.